So as you heard, if you don't know me, my name is Oli. Uh, I'm incredibly privileged to be one of the leaders in this community. Can I just give you that too? And um, I'm really excited for this morning. And uh, I just, as we were worshiping this morning, just felt God looking over his people, just a sense of God looking over and going, you guys are beautiful to me. God looks upon his people and he, is, he, he loves us. He's, we are beautiful in his sight. And I just want to encourage us with that this morning. So, we've been working our way through this series uh, on Nehemiah. And um, I just found myself loving it more and more. I don't know about you guys. Um, I mean, when we first started and, and Gordon and Paul pitched this idea of an Old Testament series in the book of Nehemiah, I wasn't super excited about it. I don't know why, but it's probably just because I'd never really engaged with the book and, and just mined its incredible gospel riches. But the more that we've journeyed through this gem, this beautiful gem in God's word, the more I've begun to see how specifically and beautifully God's eternal word is speaking into our context, our lives, our situation. And the one theme that I felt God persistently addressing for me personally is this theme of walls. Specifically around the call for us as God's people to be building gospel walls. And as I've considered what confronted Nehemiah and the Jewish exiles in around 445 BC, so it was some time ago, the stark image of a people living in a city without walls. A picture of a situation of anarchy. A people who were defenseless, insecure, broken down defeated, where structures that they had once relied upon to provide them with safety, security, and identity and allowed them to flourish as human beings had crumbled to the ground. And as I've considered that, I see this image of our town, Stellenbosch, and of our nation that floods my mind and I look around me and I see that our situation is in some ways a striking parallel to what those returning exiles faced Because as I look at our society and our town, I see that walls are crumbling. Walls are broken down. I see people growing increasingly defenseless and vulnerable to the onslaughts that are coming against them, their families and communities. We celebrated Youth Day this last week. Yay for the public holiday. And it was a day in honor of the contribution of young people to our country, right? I read a sobering article this week by Anne Bernstein which points out that as a country, we are dismally failing our young people. There are more than 20 million South Africans between the ages of 15 and 34. 41% of those, 20 million, are not in employment, education, or training. Let that sink in for a moment. And of those that are in education and training, many attend schools that will provide them with only the most limited of educations. While post-school education, she says, is a terrain rich mainly in failing institutions. And the problem is getting worse. From 2008 till now, the population of young people increased by more than 2 million. And the number of young people who had jobs fell by, more than, by almost 500,000. That's just one area that we see we're living in a city and a nation without walls. By and large, our education system is broken. Our economy is broken. Our government is broken. Many of our leaders and institutions are broken. Family structures are breaking and broken. Our relationships with our neighbors are broken. Our streets are some of the most violent and dangerous in the world. And so we're putting up walls, but those walls are primarily walls of greed, self-protection, and fear. 
just building those walls higher and higher to keep people out. And on the face of it, it seems like there's little hope for where this country is headed, right? But as we've journeyed through the book of Nehemiah, and we've read the story of a man whose heart broke at the brokenness that he heard about and saw, a man who instead of running from the brokenness, moved towards it and took up tools to rebuild and restore and inspired a whole community to join him. My heart has been so challenged and drawn to the picture of the true and greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life in order to build a place of ultimate safety and security, a place where his people could dwell and flourish, a place where we are now free to live lives of risk because we have ultimate, utter safety in Christ our Savior. This is the essence of Romans 8, which is such a beautiful section of Scripture. Many of you will know it. Taking it as a broad outline, it starts with this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it moves on to say this, that you have this Abba Father who is faithfully working all things in your life to make you like Christ. And then it ends by saying, and nothing, not sword, not famine, not death, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when the trial and when the testing comes, follower of Christ, remember that there is no safer place for your soul than with Jesus. Our safety and our security, guys, are not found in a flourishing economy, in a good and effective government, in a cushy job, in a plush and easy lifestyle. Those things are looking pretty bad around us at the moment. And maybe it's good for us. Maybe it's God's mercy to help us find our rest, our hope, and our help in God alone. Now, I firmly believe that God still wants to rebuild this nation and that we are called to join Him in rebuilding it. But whatever walls we build, they will not stand if we don't get the foundation right. If we don't build walls that are founded on Christ and on the gospel, we need to build gospel walls in our lives and our communities, guys. And so as the church, as God's people, I firmly believe that God has placed us here for a reason. God has put us in the midst of a nation of broken walls so that we would cry out to him and then come together around our leader, Jesus Christ, and join him in the difficult but beautiful work of building the city of God within our city, of restoring the good walls of our society by filling this place with the message and the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And joining him in his gospel work of making disciples, of building family and community, of working justice, and bringing about societal and cultural renewal for his glory. So the building of the wall is primarily a picture of God's people together making a difference in their generation and in their location. I'll say that again. The building of the wall is primarily a picture of God's people together making a difference in their generation and in their location. And it's a mammoth task, guys. It's daunting. And as we're going to learn now from Nehemiah chapter 4, as the builders started off so well in chapter 3 and everyone was coming together and everyone was getting stuck in, When we get busy living in obedience to Jesus and building gospel walls in our community and society, it is just a matter of time before we get smacked with opposition and resistance. 
And this is a great word for us. Because I think we, we're often incredibly naive around this in the church today. We have this idea that if we're in obedience to God, and we're doing what He wants, well, everything's just going to be fine, and it's all going to go swimmingly. And then we're like shocked and surprised when we run onto the battlefield and suddenly, you know, the dramatic chariots of fire music stops and there's a whizzing of bullets and gunshots going off and you hit the deck and you're like, what is wrong with you people? Why are you shooting at me? And we're in a war. And the word of God is so helpful. Even if you just consider this, in this narrative, Nehemiah, we get two chapters on prayer and God's initial call of Nehemiah. Two chapters. Then we get one chapter on preparing to do the work and organizing everybody. And then we get three and a half chapters of opposition. Really seems like there's something here that God wants us to see. About the fact that those who are trying to do God's will are going to face resistance. If not now, then it's coming. It's coming. And we need to make the distinction that there's different kinds of opposition. There may be the kind of opposition that you experience when you are trying to live your goals and your dreams and trying to fulfill those and you find that you're being resisted. But there is a whole other level of opposition that kicks in when we we go about doing God's will, building his kingdom and speaking and living his word. You guys know that, right? And so let's have a look at Nehemiah chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. When Nehemiah relates how he and his motley crew of builders were just getting lambasted by multiple levels and layers of opposition. So we'll start in verse 1. There it is. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates... And the army of Samaria. So he didn't just walk into you know, Nehemiah's office and sort of offer him a few constructive criticisms. He made this public in the presence of everyone. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then his trusty sidekick, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. And so guys, the first thing I want to look at this morning is what kinds of resistance can we expect as we build these gospel walls. And I say the word expect very intentionally. What are your expectations? Do you expect things to just go off without a hitch? Or do you expect that just as our Lord and Master faced almost constant resistance and opposition from man and devils in this fallen world, so we, his servants, will too? Jesus is abundantly clear about what we can expect in this world. And as we journey towards the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness is at home, we have to realize that we're not there yet. We are still in the living in hope phase. So we're going to look at what kinds of resistance can we expect as we build gospel walls. And then secondly, we're going to look at how can we successfully withstand this resistance. So the first uh, type of resistance that we see is criticism. We can expect incidents of criticism. Now, of course, there is such a thing as constructive criticism, which is 
something that we need to listen to and learn from. But there's also plain destructive criticism. It's filled with lies, which is the case here. Looking at this passage, Sanballat was the governor of the area north of Jerusalem. And Tobiah was the governor of the area to the east. And so they gang up for like this one-two attack at God's people. And what do they do? They criticize the people themselves. They call them feeble Jews. They criticize their abilities. They say even a fox climbing up on their wall will break it down. They criticize their faith. Will they offer sacrifices? They criticize their likelihood of succeeding. Can they bring the stones back to life? You guys ever heard of tall poppy syndrome? That's the, it's an idiom where you, you know, the tall poppy in the garden, the one that sticks out above the others, is the first one that gets mowed down when the weed eater comes. And it refers to how quickly people are to cut down to size anyone who sticks out from the crowd. Anyone who decides to break rank and take on something that defies the status quo. And these two governors are rolling in this. It's like he's saying to the Jews, these walls have been lying in heaps of burned rubble for 140 years. 140 years! Who do you think you are to suddenly change that? Do you really think that if nobody else has done it for two lifetimes, you are going to be special or strong or clever enough to do something about it? And some of you in the room today can feel and have felt the sting of this because you're working hard to change some things that aren't as they should be. You're exerting yourself to make things better. And others, instead of encouraging you and being like, that's awesome, how can I back you, how can I pray for you, are criticizing you. They're like, nah, you can just, you know, that's not so good and why don't you try that and do this a little bit. Well, they just try and cut you down. And so genuinely, trying to do the right thing in obedience to God, in your family, in your workplace, in your life, does not exempt you from criticism. In fact, if anything, it will guarantee it. The second thing we see is intimidation. We can expect intimidation. So what happens? They're not deterred by the criticism, and God's people carry on building. But this just makes their critics more mad and it riles them up. And they, add, they turn up the heat and they start adding intimidation and threats. Picking up in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Our enemies said in verse 11, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. So what's happened here? Now it's no longer just Sanballat on the north and Tobiah on the east. There's opposition coming from all four sides. And so in verse 4, which we didn't read yet, Nehemiah responds to the initial criticism. What does he do? He prays to God. And then they resume building. They pray and they get back to building. And what happened? The opposition went away? No, it didn't. It just got worse. Things just escalated. At first, their opponents come with jeering criticism from two sides. And now, for various reasons, it's coming from all sides. 
They've upped the ante to intimidation. They're saying, when you least expect it, we'll sneak up on you and we'll kill you and kill your work. Intimidation is the attempt to paralyze someone or a group of people with fear. And just to be reminded this morning, what does fear stand for? False evidence appearing real. That's how fear works. It makes you see someone in the shadows when there is no one there. It makes an obstacle or an enemy seem far greater than they really are. The third thing that we see these guys encounter is weariness. And when we face, often we face things like criticism and intimidation, we begin to deal with the onset of weariness. In verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. The strength of the laborers is giving out. Remember, these guys and girls are not builders. They're not soldiers. They're a motley assortment of people, including a bunch of perfumers, like perfumers, building a wall. And the heavy physical and emotional demands of this project are taking a toll. And there's two kinds of weariness. The first one is a physical weariness, and that requires us to take some sort of rest. But there's a mental and a spiritual weariness that requires us to be reignited. And so this verse, I think, is maybe speaking more of that mental and spiritual weariness. They're worn out by the criticism and the intimidation. But remember verse 6, it says, we rebuilt the wall to half its height. So they're actually halfway up the wall. And this is generally the hardest part of building. The novelty and the excitement of starting out and embarking on a new project when dreams are fresh is gone. When you get close to the end of a project, you can, you can see the end result. You can see, and hey, Nathan, like Nathan, architect, so for him this might be very real, but you can see this thing starting to, to take shape and you know you're going to finish it because you're nearly there. But the, but the middle, that's where we're most susceptible to weariness. And some of you here know what this journey is what this part of the journey feels like. Maybe you are halfway and weary. Maybe your marriage was in crisis and you started being intentional about building it and growing in love and intimacy. You did the Alpha Marriage course. Well done, Johan and Sine and Ryan and Natalie for putting that on for us. Such a blessing. You did the marriage course. You've taken ground, but you're not in the sweet spot yet. Maybe this is far enough though because you're out of the crisis, right? No. I encourage you, keep going. The sweet spot is yet to come. Keep going. Maybe you've struggled with some sort of sinful habit that plagues you or plagued you on a daily basis and you've made some progress and now it happens as an exception and not as the norm. Keep moving to the freedom that Christ has won for you. Maybe you realized you wanted to build genuine friendships in the church and you joined a life group or you volunteered on a team but you're finding that it's taking a lot more effort and intentionality than you envisaged. Keep going. Here's a prayer that I want you to start praying if that's you, if you're in that place. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2. He prays, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. If that's you, if you're wrestling with weariness, begin to pray this, God, would you revive me here in the midst of the years? Would you help me to, to uh, take this thing on and finish it? Great, so weariness. And then the last one we're going to look at this morning is negativity. We can expect nagging negativity. And it comes from two places. 
First, it can come from people close to us. Look at verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So now it's not just their enemies, but fellow Jews who are bombarding them with negativity. Nehemiah records ten conversations with fellow Jews. These guys are persistent. They don't give up easily. Each conversation sucking the wind right out of his sails. And it's amazing how often well-meaning people, even those, maybe especially those who love you and want the best for you, can be so discouraging when you're forging new territory. The thing about our loved ones is they want us to be safe and secure. And often what God calls us to is anything but safe and secure. So, we can do well to recognize that their calls for us to slow down or to stop come from a good place. They come from a pure motive. But sometimes we've got to go with what we know God is calling us to regardless. And secondly, negativity can also come from our own inner voice. So we've seen the, the criticism and the threats coming to them. And then in verse 10 it says, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, There is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Listen to this. The soundtrack that they've begun to put on repeat in their minds is, We cannot. And it's so common. Negative voices outside our head transform into a negative voice inside our head. Sanballat and Tobiah have said to them, you cannot. And now they are echoing the outer voice, we cannot. They are making agreements with the enemy. This is so common and might I argue it is the most lethal of all forms of resistance because it's pure self-sabotage. No one speaks to you about you more than you. And so listen to what you say to yourself. Maybe it's, oh, who do I think I am taking on something like this? Maybe it's, oh, this is never going to work. I may as well just quit right now. Or maybe they're right. Maybe I'm just biting off more than I can chew. Listen to me. When you're building anything of worth, be sure to expect that your own thoughts and feelings will be your most intense enemy. Great, so now we're going to look at the good stuff. How do we overcome resistance? And so we see Nehemiah, we can learn some stuff from him. He does so in five ways. And the first is this, prayer. Nehemiah models this so beautifully. He is a man who knows his own dependence on God. So many times I live from a place of sinful independence. I think that the solution is for me to keep building, to redouble my efforts. But scripture reminds us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. Psalm 127. If we want to overcome, we need to learn from Nehemiah and we need to learn from Jesus. We need to learn to turn to God in prayer. Let's track back to verse 4. Hear us, he prays, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. I'm not sure about the content of Nehemiah's prayer. I'm not sure if I'd want him to pray for me. Um, And it's not necessarily a prayer. I'd encourage you to pray. But I think we're just seeing a glimpse here of his humanness. 
And I think the main thing is that he doesn't retaliate against people. He goes to God in prayer when he's feeling under the whip. He doesn't try to play judge and executioner. But even in his anger and his frustration, he brings his heart to God in prayer, trusting him to judge rightly. So I hope you're picking up the theme of prayer in the book of Nehemiah. Prayer, when the original burden comes to Nehemiah, when he hears the report, prayer for success in an audience with the king, prayer in response to opposition, prayer, prayer. I want to encourage you to keep going day by day in your personal devotional time. And as, you'll, as you do, you'll be amazed in your growth as prayer becomes foundational to how you respond to events in your life. I'm so challenged by their response because there are two things that my fleshliness, my carnality, are much more inclined to do than pray. The first is just to give in, just give up and stop building. Just get rid of the opposition. And then we say and think things like, well, if, if God was in this, surely it wouldn't be so hard, right? Wrong. The Bible gives us courage to see that some of what God is in is very, very hard. But he always empowers us when we seek him. And the second thing I'm inclined to do is to absorb myself in the distraction. To take on the conflict and make sure that I look good to those around me. So maybe in Nehemiah's case, he could have engaged in the sledging. You know, he could have been like, ha, Sanballat. What kind of a name is that anyway? And Tobiah, you deserter. Why don't you come a little closer and we'll show you. And very soon, the big idea and the main cause fades into the background as I get caught up in defending my own honor, my own reputation. That's why prayer is so key to resistance, to overcoming resistance. The second thing we see is awe. To overcome, we've got to remember who God is and how awesome God is. Remember what intimidation is? It is fear. It is false evidence appearing real. And what it does is it creates the impression that our obstacle or enemy is greater than our God. The solution is what Nehemiah reminds us of in, chapter, in verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So hear what he's saying. God, the one whom we are building for, stands with us in the building and in the battle. And he is great and awesome. Great means that he's more powerful than whoever or whatever can come against us. Awesome means that he inspires awe. He inspires a kind of holy fear out of those who encounter him. God's grace is awesome. His wisdom is awesome. His greatness is awesome. His power is awesome. Remember. Bring to mind the Lord in these times of intense battle. It will amaze you how things come into their right perspective as you do. Thirdly, we see them responding with vigilance. And so to overcome, we can't just be available to build. We need to be alert to the battle. That's such a cool picture there of the sword and the trowel, which is just a stunning image that comes through in the scripture. In verse 13, it says, Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And now look in particular at how they both build and battle. 
They've got a tool to build in one hand and a weapon to fight in the other. Verse 17, those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. I don't know how that worked as they were like passing each other bricks and stuff like, oh, stop poking me with your sword. But they did it. They did it because they had to. And it's a powerful metaphor. Maybe you're very comfortable as a Christian with the whole building metaphor, but not really with the fighting one. And I want to call you to courage today to be ready to fight. Not seek to start a fight. We don't see the builders heading out to attack uh, those who were mocking them and taunting them. But to be ready to fight off those things that will hinder and harm what God is busy with in your life and in your community. I don't know what you believe about the devil, about the evil one, but scripture and my experience confirms that there is a spiritual battle that ensues whenever God's people get serious about doing his will. Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. And so as you step out to build these gospel walls, the devil and his spiritual allies get right into fight mode. And they will do whatever they can to stop you in your tracks. Perhaps through circumstantial trouble. Things just going wrong, left, right and center. Perhaps through the actions of people around you that feel like personal attacks. Perhaps through accusing, demoralizing self-talk that you continually throw at yourself. Where you've so believed the lies of the evil one that they've become like your own voice. Maybe it's through your health or through your sleep cycles, those of you with small children. We should not be naive and assume that working for God moves us into some sort of realm where things just fall into place, as I said earlier. In many senses, it moves us in the exact opposite direction. We need to be vigilant. And then the fourth strategy we see them employing is vulnerability. Vulnerability. So if we want to overcome, we need to vulnerably ask others for help. Check out verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. The ancient historian Josephus says that they they actually placed trumpets every 500 feet along the wall. So if the attack was coming... It sounds like there's a trumpet on the roof. Um, if, if you saw an attack or some enemies coming, you could run to the nearest trumpet and grab it and blow it, and others would come to help you. And so we are builders, guys. We are battlers. But first and foremost, we are family. In a church, we need to find a network of relationships with whom we can be real when tough times hit. God tells us that he puts the lonely in families. In a church, we need to connect to some shepherd leaders in our lives. Life group leaders are integral to our strategy as a church to shepherd and care for God's people. And and what what often happens is normally we wait for a problem or a situation in in our lives to escalate to the point of like a virtual blowout before we go and look for help, before we come to the elders and we're like, ah, my life's a mess. Rather start where you are now and begin processing your struggles with someone who knows you and who cares for you and who who can help you with that. That's why we place a high value on life groups. And we want all of our partners to be vitally engaged in one of them. Because that's the space where you're connected in. That's the space where you're cared for. And to these people, we can and we must vulnerably blow our trumpet when we need help. 
And it may be all kinds of help that we need. We might hit a patch of real trouble in our lives. We might say to them, I'm trying to serve God, but I'm discouraged. I'm experiencing criticism, intimidation, weariness, negativity. I've given in to a hectic temptation, or I'm about to. I've made a really bad decision. My marriage is not going well, and I don't know what to do. Something that would, at first was just casual fun has become a harmful addiction. I have a secret that's eating away at my life. Guys, we need to get to the place where we can be vulnerable to share these things with each other. Let me ask, how engaged are you in the family of God? When the pawpaw hits the fan in your life, do you isolate yourself? Do you pull back and go underground? Guys, that is not a healthy way to live. It's not going to help you. It's not going to serve you. We need people who know us. We need people who know our stuff, who can listen to our struggles and then look us in the eyes and help us to differentiate the lies of the devil that we're believing and the truth that God is trying to speak into our lives and help us to discern what God is saying. We need each other. The fifth and the final thing that we see, see them doing or see them using is grit, just plain old grit. To overcome, we must not give up. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plots and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Beautiful. In the end, it's not the Jews who give up, but the enemy. That is grit. We need to be more determined to carry on than the devil is determined to stop us. And so the building of the wall may have been slowed down, but the work did not stop. And so if there's a lesson for us, it's this. The building of the gospel walls must go on. What gives them and us the courage and the strength to endure with grit? I think it's this. Nehemiah's reminder in verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Michelle led us, and Charles led us so beautifully in prayer this morning. And she was just reminding us of the picture of Moses standing at the Red Sea. Must have felt so ridiculous holding his staff up all night in the howling wind. With that beautiful image of standing and allowing God to fight for us. Our God will fight for us. And there is only one question to ask. Is God in this? By that I mean, does God want me to build this wall? Is God in it? Will God fight for us? If he is, we will succeed. If God is for you, then ultimately, who can be against you? It's a matter of grit, of holding on to God's call, God's promise, and keeping on, keeping on building the wall. Just like I'm going to keep on keeping on preaching despite things falling and geese squawking. And <laughs> Where's Paul with his shotgun when you need him? I love this verse in the New Testament because it captures the spirit of grit. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's pull it all together. I don't know what wall you are building in your own life. I'm sure there's plenty of insights in here for you to encourage you. But as a church, we need to know exactly what wall God is calling us to build. 
We are a gospel community called to build gospel walls that make a difference in our generation and our location. To build the city of God within Stelis and its surrounding communities by filling this place with the message and the presence of the resurrected Jesus and joining him in his gospel work of making disciples, building family and community, working justice, and bringing about societal and cultural renewal for his glory. This is a great work. These are the walls that are worth building and the walls that we are building. Come and join us. So just to recap quickly, what do we learn today? The common forms of resistance, criticism, intimidation, weariness, negativity. We don't have that table up there, but um, strategies to overcome it are prayer or vigilance, vulnerability, and finally, grit. Right, so I'm going to invite the band to come up and just begin playing softly in the background. And as they do that, I want us to just take a few minutes, two or three minutes, and I want you to jot down three words in your journal or on your phone or whatever you have to write with. Three words, wall, resistance, overcome. Okay? Write down what is your wall that you are currently building. Write down what form of resistance you are currently experiencing and write down overcome what is your strategy to overcome that resistance?